0: Dickel's Leadership and Strategy Podcast, bringing you authentic conversations with leaders about their approach to leadership and their organization's strategy for success. Hello, and welcome to the Leadership and Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Dickel, and I'm joined today with our guest, Beth Foltz. Beth, how are you doing today? I'm
1: doing great. Glad to be here. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for
0: joining us. Would you begin uh, telling our listeners about your background?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in rural Posey County and was uh, born into a family that put faith first, but family was a close second. Mm -hmm. And we really valued education, hard work, and giving back to the community, I would say. So that, you know, that kind of, that was instilled into me at a very young age. It was a fun childhood, not a perfect childhood, but a fun childhood. And um, I went to Mount Vernon High School and then wanted to go to IU Bloomington, but my mom said there's a perfectly good school one and a half miles away you'll be attending. So I went to ISUE, best thing that ever happened. Um, I've got a degree in history and political science. And what do you do with a degree in history and political science? You go to law school. Sure. <laughs> so. Uh, I uh, went to law school at Bloomington, came out of law school and started practicing back in this area because I met my husband while I was in law school and he lived in this area. So practiced for twenty five years and now I work for Habitat for Humanity of Evansville as the executive director. I've been here about nine years and uh, really feel like this is my life's calling.
0: Great. Well, I know Habitat for Humanity does a lot of great work in our community. Tell me about how you made that transition then from being a, a lawyer, and you primarily practice family law, is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. primarily family law, but in a small-town practice, you do a lot of different things. I did wills and trust, and criminal prosecution and criminal defense. CHINS cases, which are when the state comes in and removes a child from the home because the parents aren't taking care of the child, and um, kind of saw the underbelly of society was when you're growing up in rural, a rural community, and you're not exposed to that as a young child, it really kind of made me cynical for a period of time, so sure. I knew it wasn't my life's calling to be a lawyer. Um but, I think most lawyers, contrary to most people's belief, really go into law because they want to help people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was just something that was i guess ingrained in me mm-hmm. and so when i the position of executive director came up, I had been serving on the board of Habitat for probably five or six years, and it was a pure leap of faith to in it and a lot of courage to Take that step to apply. Wow! Yeah. yeah,
0: I'm sure that was a. I'm sure some of your friends and family wondered what you're doing.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, at the same time I was coming on as the executive director, my husband retired, so it was it was a big change in the Foltz household.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Now tell us. Some of our listeners may not be very familiar with Habitat for Humanity, so tell us a little bit about the organization.
1: So I. I love to say that we fight poverty through the provision of affordable home ownership because having a stable home is so um, integral to so many other aspects of life. So we provide the opportunity to own a home through a 0% interest loan. And it really, you just see families blossom in this program because they're doing something. They're helping themselves and we're just a tool they're using to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can understand how if we don't have a safe place to live, both physically, we don't feel physically safe, or maybe there are environmental issues that make us sick yeah. or um, ill, that could really uh, affect like a child and their education and um, their overall well-being, and then a the effects of a parent's ability to take care of them and probably their ability to to work and provide for the family
1: yeah yeah you know that's the thing about habitat we work with our families for about a year at, before they get into their home cuz they're doing their 300 sweat equity hours where they're helping other people build, and you really build relationships with the families that are going through the program and you get to know their stories a little bit their struggles um and how they're overcoming them and uh, I just have the greatest admiration for our families because they you know much like it took courage for me to jump into this role it takes a a large dose of courage to say I need help I'm I'm struggling to provide housing and they step out and, you know, when they get that call that they've qualified to be um, a Habitat homeowner, I know it's going to change the trajectory of their life. Right,
0: right. (laughs) And I think a lot of people probably assume that Habitat gives away homes. or um, Number one myth. (laughs) Right, right. But really the program is designed to look at, People's uh, ability to pay an affordable mortgage. They have to put forth sweat equity hours building other people's homes, and then they. It's my understanding they take classes too, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. We qualify families based on their need for housing, their willingness to partner with us, and their ability to pay that zero percent interest mortgage and. Right now, with the interest rates where they're at, they're saving about $130,000 just in interest payments, but they are paying for that house. Um, are their house payments are about $500 to $550 per month for a three-bedroom home, and that's about half of the rental rate in Evansville. So it's a way to give them a hand up and not a handout. and um, you just you can't imagine the impact that has on a
0: family's life sure and they're developing equity and 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 some wealth along the way too
1: and so part of that sweat equity is all those classes they have to take they have to take a money management class they've got to take a home maintenance class they've got to take a neighborhood relations class I mean it's all about preparing families to be successful in those homes too
0: that's great. Yeah. That's that's exciting. I'm sure it's inspiring work.
1: Yeah, it is. It is.
0: Tell us about your approach to leadership, moving from a lawyer to leading a staff. I mean, you have how many on your staff now?
1: So when we're fully staffed, there's 14 here on at the affiliate and there's six employees at our Restore, but the affiliate is the side that is really focused on working with families and building homes. So- it's a relatively actually small staff for the amount of work that we get done. I'm just blessed beyond measure to have really good people to work with. I mean, they are the ones that really make the wheels turn here.
0: Sure. Tell us about like your, how do you approach leadership? Is there a model that you've yeah. used or a, a somebody in your life that's influenced how you lead? Yeah.
1: You know, I think I've always been when I do this strengths finder survey,
0: mm-hmm. I'm
1: I'm a achiever and an implementer. I'm not really one that will it's not that I don't think things through because I probably overthink things through, but I'm a get-it done person. Mm-hmm. And so my leadership style is to have a goal and just work my hardest and inspire the staff to work their hardest to achieve that goal. And and I think having that mission first and foremost at the front of everybody's mind every day when they show up here and know that we're doing this to help families escape poverty and so that they will have a stable place to live. That, I think, is a common theme. If you talk to any of the people who will work here, that's what drives them day in and day out.
0: Right. So regardless of whether they are involved with building or taking care of the books or Uh, marketing, communications, development, they, you know, helping them understand the why behind the work.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it is, I mean, it's, Habitat is kind of a complex model because we're a bank, we're a social service agency, we're a construction company. We have to raise the money to do this, and we've got this business side we've got to run too. So I often refer to us as a lot of gears, and maybe I'm the person turning the gears to make sure they're all working together, I think is how I I often see myself.
0: Right. And and I think that's a great lesson for all leaders. We need to think about what inspires people because they spend so much time working. I mean, as adults, we spend a lot of our, our life working. And Helping them understand the purpose behind the work—that it's not just showing up, clocking in, clocking out—but there's a greater purpose behind what we do, and and if we can connect people to that, I think they're more engaged. They're more likely to—they're uh, going to be more productive. They're more likely going to stay in their yeah. role. Yeah.
1: If you're not connected to the mission, you're not going to be successful working for me. I hate to say it, because sure. It really the mission drives everything we do, and we're not a we're not a clock in and spend your seven and a half hours and clock out. I mean, it is it's a calling to work work here, and thankfully, the people who are here fill that fill that
0: too. So that's great. During your time, about how many about how many houses do you build a year?
1: Well, when I first came, we were building eight to nine houses a year, and to be honest, it was kind of a down. Or the history of our affiliate was like peaks and valleys. We'd have really strong years and really low years, and um, my, and really my board's calling through strategic planning was to get to a level playing field. So. We are now building about last in fiscal year twenty two we built twenty seven homes. So we tripled production in nine years, and um our goal is to every year build at least twenty homes. But we're kicking that goal. <laughs> you know, we're doing really well against that that's so,
0: exciting, yeah, and I'm sure if you can connect people to say these are even more lives we can impact. By by growth, that's probably what what helps motivate people.
1: Yeah, it is. It's it's total. I think if the single uh, most important thing I think we do as a board is strategic planning and setting that goal um, and everybody being on the page. And as you know, we're getting ready to kick off. Uh, this will be the third strategic plan that I've overseen, and having that goal that's everybody's aiming for, Mm -hmm. um, is so important to get the wheels moving. And we've had a donor challenge us to double production in the next five years, and I'm not sure. (laughs) 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 I'm like, if I thought 25 homes was a a big goal, I think 50 homes is an even huger goal.
0: (laughs) Right, right, yeah. What elements of strategic planning then have been like, really helpful for you as an organization like what what about that process you mentioned like having a goal that everybody's working towards anything else you want to add to that
1: well I am the last time we did strategic planning which you facilitated and just um, super grateful for your gifts and talents um, coming and surrounding us with that but doing listening sessions with our stakeholders, most importantly doing those listening sessions with the families that we're serving it really it it really gave me insight about what the people who are benefiting from our services what they valued and what what really is important to this ministry and i i really think change happens through relationships and those relationships with those families um listening to what they want will always help us improve our program. And um, I I worry sometimes because we build in low-income neighborhoods that we're not, you know, we're kind of perpetuating redlining that occurred, you know, back in the 60s. And hearing a family say to me in that one listening session, we don't care where you build, just build, you know, was kind of, um, refreshing for me to hear that because it calms some of the concerns I had about um, just continuing to build in low-income neighborhoods. So, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, what a what a good lesson. Um, and so for our, for our listeners, I, I help facilitate the previous Habitat strategic plan, and and one of the one of the things we sometimes do in strategic planning is we neglect the end user. So the end user is ultimately the person who, you know, benefits from our products or services. And I think it's easy in a business to just ask the employees or to ask the board, what should we do next? Mm-hmm. But how much time are we really spending asking, asking the customer, the people that we serve? I remember having some of those conversations with the um, homeowners that have benefited from purchasing a home through a Habitat. And bringing that experience, I think, to the board's attention, to the staff's attention, is is really critical because often we we think we have these great ideas and we can solve yeah. problems ourselves, yeah. but we neglect the the humans that we're yes. really trying to
1: help. absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I I really. I hold our homeowners up on a pedestal because they've made it through such challenging circumstances that I'm not sure I could have survived or would have survived. And they're taking action to do more, help themselves reach their potential or whatever, however you want to say it. And they've set a goal and they're working for it. So, you know, I just, lots of admiration for those folks. and. They they do know what they need and what they don't need. (laughs) Sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So this would be kind of a curious question with with people buying homes. Do you have many defaults on a mortgage?
1: Yeah. Well, we do uh, not a lot, but we do have Mm -hmm. some. And that was uh, actually when I came in to Habitat. We had about a thirty percent delinquency rate. Now we count one day delinquent as Uh, If they're one day late, they're delinquent in their mortgages. But there were about 30% of the mortgages we hold were delinquent. We, through this money management course, through budget partners who volunteer their time to work with our families, um, just helping them get some money management skills, um, we've whittled that down to about a 10% delinquency rate, and that's from one day delinquent to up to 90%. Unfortunately, as part of that process, I had to foreclose on some of the homeowners. Mm -hmm. What I tell, I teach the closing class for Habitat. And what I tell them is, I depend on your payment to serve future families. And it's not fair for me to enforce some mortgages and not all mortgages. Mm -hmm. So they know from the get-go, this is a contract. This is an agreement between you and Habitat that you're going to pay for this home. And we know that you can pay for this home because we've done a whole lot of work ahead of time to know you can afford this home. Mm-hmm. So it's a very small percentage. Probably um, we've built 580 homes now. Probably 17 of those or so have been foreclosed on. I say it's a, it's the saddest part of my job to have to do that. But we give them lots of chances. Um, If they get behind in their payment, I will work out a forbearance agreement with them or a foreclosure prevention agreement, which my legal background certainly has helped with, and give them another bite at the apple. But they have to take that money management course to learn some money management skills again. And you know, we're not willy-nilly foreclosing on houses. We really work with our families. We don't want their homes back. We want them in their homes and thriving in their homes.
0: Right. I mean, I, the the takeaway I have from that is that that seems like a very high success rate, which, which is, uh, you know, good to hear. I'm sure that's a very sad process. But yeah. as you've cut down that delinquency rate, you are doing some really proactive things to try to help yeah. Prepare yeah. people for success.
1: Yeah. And I tell you, the volunteers, we've got a lot of banking volunteers. You have to have what's called an NMLS number to be a budget partner. And those budget partners work one on one with the families that are going through our program. And we have families that have an associate's degree in accounting all the way to someone who's never used a calculator before. So, a wide range of people. And I say we're not working with widgets. We're working with people, and they come with different skills and different challenges and different strengths. And the budget partners can be nimble and work with whoever, whoever they are assigned to, and they're, they're wonderful people.
0: That's probably a good, good segue into a conversation. You mentioned volunteers. I know there are a lot of volunteers with Habitat. How do you successfully manage volunteers because they're they're a critical yeah. component of of the work that you do you couldn't do without them but sometimes vo- managing volunteers can be challenging too. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I I I credit the people that founded our affiliate. They built excitement from the get-go about habitat in our community and I still have people come up to me that Um, helped to build homes back in 92 or 95 that when we were doing blitz builds where we would build 20 homes in a week or 21 homes in a week. And they come up to me out in public when we've got a table and say, hey, I helped work on a Habitat home. And that enthusiasm to go out and help their neighbor was built into the foundation of Habitat early on. And so we have around 500 volunteers, I think, a year that we um, come out. Some of those are core crew members that volunteer week in and week out and really become skilled at what they're doing. And those men and women, gosh, wonderful, wonderful people. You'll never meet anybody better than somebody who comes out three days a week to hammer nails and raise walls and put on siding and windows and doors. They're just good-to-the-bone people, and um, they become leaders of other volunteers. So we're in the process of really trying to recruit volunteers again. It's a huge need. We couldn't do what we do without our volunteers. They save us about $18,000 per house because they're volunteering their time to be our labor um, mm-hmm. of building homes. So, but it's, it's a challenge to recruit people. But once once you know the Habitat model that we're not a handout, we're a hand up, people really get invested and they take ownership of it. And we've implemented some software that allows people to volunteer and sign up to volunteer more easily, which was a godsend. I mean, it really was for us to do that because we were doing it all manually before. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's tough, though, but... People are very committed and enjoy their time when they come out to volunteer.
0: One of the statistics I've read in in recent years has been on uh, volunteered hours across the country dropping, so more and more nonprofits are struggling finding volunteers that volunteers they don't necessarily want a regular commitment like today like they did in the past, mm-hmm. and so I'm curious what you've done maybe to work towards still being able to recruit volunteers even though maybe volunteer interests and needs and schedules have changed?
1: It's funny because we've kind of had a resurgence of the core crew volunteers. We've gotten, you know, I go to core crew lunches and I see a lot of new faces now, which is kind of amazing, you know. But, you know, what our volunteers tell us is. They enjoy the relationships they build out on job site, and these become their friends that they're working with. And, and we feed them well, too. <laughs> you know, they, uh, we have core crew lunches quarterly and get them invested in the mission, too. Let them know what we're working towards, and uh, we celebrate our successes. Like in fiscal year 22, we were um, the 12th highest building affiliate in the country and for an area of our size, that's pretty outstanding. And they played a huge role in that. So we celebrated that with them. And so they also get tied into that mission. I think every component of our work is tied to that mission. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think keeping them informed, building relationships with them, to me, it's all about relationships.
0: (laughs) Sure. Well, probably, you know, they come for the mission, but they may stay for the relationships yep, that yep, they build. Yep. So as you've seen Habitat grow during your time as a leader, did you say nine years? Yes.
1: Nine so years.
0: nine years. How has your leadership changed then? Uh, Coming in as a brand new executive director, you know, what do you know now that you didn't know then?
1: <laughs> a lot. And I still have a lot to learn if I'm running out of time to learn that. But, <laughs> No, um, I think when I came in, I came in with kind of the rosy colored glasses of I'm going to be doing good work. And I had a lot of mentorship by um, Sister J. Michelle McClure, who is just wonderful at building relationships. She's our major gifts officer. And she really, set forth before me, and I had never raised a dime other than having a spaghetti dinner at church. I'd never raised a dime before. And she she let me know pretty early on, it all starts with money. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it does, because you can have the grandest plans, but if you can't fund those plans, it's all for naught. So mm-hmm. I didn't realize the, I, mean, I realized the importance of fundraising, I didn't know how to do it, and she's really helped to teach me. And also through the Evansville Area Fundraising Council and your seminars and some other training we've gone to, I've realized the importance of fundraising. Mm-hmm. And it's more again all about relationships. What's your relationship with that donor, and can you um, connect with people who care about what you're doing? So mm-hmm. that's that was a big. Aha moment early on, very early on. I was just trying to keep the wheels rolling because, as I mentioned, we I came in when we were kind of struggling a little bit. Mm-hmm. I where I'm at now, I'm learning how to let go of things and trust the the team that I've got to carry out things and not be such a micromanager, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I can tend to be. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a challenge for a leader who you mentioned that you're an achiever. Yes. And so often as an achiever, and uh I, I have that in my top five strengths too. I I feel achievement by doing the work.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's a a mindset change to then think about achievement through the work that other people do. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes I think I should be the one doing this or I should be more useful or more hands-on. But really, if we can figure out how to empower a team, so it's not just me doing the work, it's me doing the work through other people. And you can have, you know, you mentioned 14 people on the in the affiliate office yeah. doing that work, then, I mean, that has so much more impact than if it was just me.
1: Yeah. I, you know, Early on, um, a head of a company told me to read the book, From Good to Great. And I think one of the first things is get the right people on the bus. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it has taken me a while to get the right people on the bus. But that, you know, being able to trust your staff to carry out stuff has been a godsend. I mean, I trust them to do the work now and so it has been easier to kind of pull back and say all right i'm not going to i'm not going to do that this time they're right. i'm going to trust them to do that and it everybody's doing their best you know we all try to do our best mm-hmm. it has taken me a while to let go of those reins so <laughs> sure. i think and i'm still working on it mm-hmm. but i think one thing i turned 60 last year and I know that I'm not going to be around here forever, you know. i am mm-hmm. got probably another five, seven years in me. But I want to prepare the organization to continue to succeed and continue to grow and thrive long after I'm here. And, and I think you do that by letting go of some stuff and trusting that it will be done well, you
0: know. Right. I, I think there's some ego involved, though. Like yeah. as a leader, I, I I felt it myself when I have conversations with people. Sometimes there is a part of us that thinks this this place is dependent on me. Yeah, yeah. But really, the the sign of a great leader is when we move on. If it's successful without me.
1: Yeah.
0: That or or sometimes if it's successful while I'm disconnected on vacation. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. still you know, the ship still keeps yeah. sailing, then that's a sign that you've really built yeah, a team. Yeah.
1: And and I can go on vacation now and just disconnect because we have such good team members here. I mean, I really don't see myself as a leader. I see myself as a coworker. Mm-hmm. Um, But I also need know there's got to be somebody driving the ship that people are confident in. I can now go and trust that the things will get done that need to be done, and mm-hmm. it's. Um, I'm trying to get my ego out of it. it it's a learning process. Right, so.
0: right, <laughs> right, and we don't we don't really want to admit that we have egos, but yeah, we do. Yeah. We all do. Yeah. Are there any setbacks you've experienced leading at Habitat that that you know come to mind as you think about like? wow, this was a this was an experience that didn't go as I had hoped and kind of influenced how you led after that moment?
1: Absolutely. I will say f- fiscal year 22, which happened to be the year we built the most houses ever, was also the hardest year of leadership for me. We fell prey to the great resignation, and I had about half of my staff leave that year. And that was a big... Um, aha, wake up moment for me, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I, I, as I mentioned, I was raised in a family where hard work is kind of ingrained and you keep your nose to the grindstone and just work, work, work. I was kind of pushing my staff too hard Mm -hmm. and um, really had to step back and say, this is not today's society. Not that my staff doesn't work hard. They really do work hard Uh, but I was pushing them too much. Mm -hmm. And uh, we put some things in place after fiscal year 22. We looked at our compensation. We looked at doing stuff just for fun, you know, like we went to lunch and watched the NCAA tournament, you know, just to build some camaraderie and have some fun as a staff. We tried to do development kind of things. I'm not perfect at this yet and will never be perfect at it. But I think I think it really, knowing that people need time to breathe, need time to reflect, need time to just sit back and think from time to time instead of do, 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 I, that was a big um, wake-up call for me.
0: Right. And yeah. I think people can survive on overdrive for a little while. Yeah. But it can't be the the norm. And everybody has a different sense of work life balance too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there are people out there who legitimately can handle a 60 plus hour work week, yeah. week in, week out, and it feels just fine.
1: Yeah. That
0: they they don't they're not burnout, they're not stressed, they're still able to manage their their family and relationships. But there are people who can't, yeah, and I think, in some ways, we have to have conversations with the people we lead and and see how they're doing, and check in and there's this fairly new concept of the stay interview where we ask people what are they enjoying about their job what what challenges are they experiencing, and where do they see themselves in the future? Yeah. And those kind of conversations are very proactive and can make sure that we retain yes. the, our staff.
1: And, and that's, I mean, we're, we are conducting those stay interviews now. Now they're very informal. They're like going out to lunch and really just checking in how, how you're doing. And again, it goes back to that relationship piece that I talk about. we, we are in, I spend more time in this office with the people I work with than I spend with my husband at home. And it's a sad fact, but it is true. And, you know, I consider them friends. We do have those conversations and we do offer each other grace. And because we do screw up from time to time, you know, but being more intentional about doing those check ins and seeing where people need help and where can we offer. Do we need to hire more staff and those kind of things? And what's what's overloading them? I think that's an important piece that I really didn't appreciate early on in my time here at mm-hmm. Habitat because I am one of those people that can work sixty hours a week and it doesn't burn me out and I'm not bothered by it. But right. I've got I've again had to roll back my ego and <laughs> realize not everybody's like mm-hmm.
0: that. I'm I'm glad too that it, it's easy. As a leader to say, "Well, this is just the way the way it is. we're always going to have a hard time recruiting and retaining people and but it sounds like you took some steps to address compensation to build a community among the staff, and you know have some intentional conversations around their experiences
1: we We made a decision, and you know I have a wonderful HR committee that. If you're working for Habitat, you shouldn't qualify for our services. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. just because you're working for a nonprofit doesn't mean you should not be compensated if you're doing your job well. And um, so we really took a hard look at compensation and raised it pretty dramatically in some circumstances. And you talk about a boost to employee morale. um, Sure. Pay does it. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I I think pay is a component. Yeah. But especially if the people working for us cannot take care of their basic needs. Yes. Yeah. And so if if the people working for you at the end of the day still are struggling to pay their bills, yeah. to take care of their family, they're never going to br- bring their their whole self to the job. Yeah. And there are going to be so many distractions that get in the way of their ability to do their job effectively. And and so I think there is that, that piece of compensation that we need to make sure that people are really self-sufficient, if yes, maybe that's yeah, a good yeah, word. Yeah. But also, I think, combine that with meaning, because meaning alone isn't enough to keep people in a job mm-hmm. because if at the end of the day they may be very passionate they may love what they do but if they can't take care of their basic needs exactly they can't exactly. continue in that role yeah. long enough
1: it, and you know i just think if you're stressed about being able to meet meet your basic needs and have some funds for enjoyment too if you're stressed about that You're not performing well at work. And we see it in our families, you know. We see once our families have an affordable home that they can live in and they're not having to work two and three jobs, they they really begin to thrive and they get better jobs. They get more education. Same thing with our employees. We've got to treat our employees the way we would want to be treated, you know, the golden rule, (laughs) you know.
0: What are you most proud of as a as a leader? As I said, achiever.
1: I mean, we since I've been here, we have served approaching 168 families in nine years. And that we've seen this tremendous growth and that we have a vision for continuing to grow and continuing to expand. And when I say 168, I think of the 168 families that now have a stable home to live in and are not struggling anymore. And that—that that is, like, the thing I'm most proud of because I've seen the underbelly of society. Housing is a solution issue, and um, housing— impacts every aspect of life and so those families have a solid footing now because of the work this affiliate has done so
0: it gets me gets me kind of choked <laughs> up thinking about that just yeah. cuz it is a tremendous uh life changer for for all these families and so you say 168 then you multiply that by how many children they may have or how many are in the household and then you think about the the good that then they're able to spread throughout the community. Absolutely. It's just this kind of exponential good that's that happens.
1: It is. And that's, when I say 168, that's just during my nine years. 580 families on Friday, we dedicate our 580th home. And the impact that has, not just on those families, but in the neighborhoods where those homes are and those those kids that are growing up, not moving every year, whose education is gonna be better. It's just it's very powerful stuff. And to be I'm a very small piece in that. And um, mm-hmm. um it's it's just I'm I'm very blessed to be able to work here. Yeah. I that, do love it. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: that's that's exciting. I can tell from just our our interactions in the past and the work we've done together and just this conversation too. I can tell it's really Much more than a job. It's a a passion and a vocation, probably.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Um, How can people find out more about Habitat for Humanity of Evansville, or how could they get involved or help?
1: Yeah, well, I say there's something for everyone at Habitat because we are a construction company. If you like to build things, definitely can help you there, but... You know we have people who cross stitch samplers that we give to every family at their dedication. We have people who bake cookies for every dedication. There is really um uh, something for everyone here, so they can call our office or they can get um go to evansohabit dot org and get on our website and sign up to volunteer or give me a call you know we'll we'll put you to work
0: <laughs> great well. Well, it sounds like there are a lot of opportunities to learn more and to maybe get involved if people are looking for a way to give back, and uh, Habitat would be a great way to do that. Thank you for the conversation today, Beth. It was really a pleasure talking with you and and, uh, sharing your your passion as a leader at uh, Habitat, and uh, I know that the listeners will benefit from you know, some of the wisdom that you shared today. And uh, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. To learn more about Dr. Tad Dickel and the T.A. Dickel group, please visit TADickel.com. Thank you for joining us.